1: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
2: The relationship between loneliness and solitude is, is somewhat porous. I don't think there's just a totally clearer line between them. And somehow writing really helps bridge those two situations where loneliness can just become solitude.
3: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Kiara Alegria-Hudis talks about her writing and the creative process.
2: I always feel most alive in the creative process, and I always feel the most dread when the work goes out into the world.
1: Kiara Alegria-Hudis is a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. She's best known for writing the book for the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical In the Heights. She also wrote the screenplay for the recently released movie version. She's just published a memoir titled My Broken Language, which tells the story of how a girl with a Jewish father and a Puerto Rican mother came to understand her place in the world. A quick note before we get to my interview with Kiara. I spoke to her on Zoom and recorded myself on my very fancy microphone but my recording failed, so we had to use the Zoom backup. That will explain the poor audio on my end. Big sigh. Pandemic recordings, may they come to an end soon. In any case, my first question to Kiara was if it was true that she considers herself a voraciously slow reader. (laughs)
2: um i i characterized myself pretty well in that sentence yeah i i underline i take a lot of notes i will spend a day reading and rereading a page um and then when there's a book i know i'm not alone in this when there's a book i really love i slow down especially at the end because i don't want it to end you were born
1: in pennsylvania and as I mentioned in the introduction, your mom is Puerto Rican, and your dad is jewish um, you 've said that your mother first introduced you to the magic of words when your family lived on a horse farm outside of Philadelphia. How did she do that?
2: You know I was born in in West Philly, and from the time I was really a toddler until we moved out to the countryside. There's a lot going on in West Philly. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of kids to play with. There's a lot of ice cream trucks to hear and fantasize about. And all of a sudden, when I was five, we moved to the countryside and there were almost no distractions. And she would take me out to the hills in the uh, backyard, which was part of a farm. And she would just start to read to me her poems um, in Spanish and English. Um, Some were in Lakota. Um, She would start to pray um, in various languages. And so, just by virtue of having more stillness, the words resonated in a whole new way out out on the farm. Your
1: parents split up when you were very young. And you've written about how you remember crossing Girard Avenue, traveling north and going from an artsy neighborhood to true North Philly. And you've written about how it felt to be a five-year-old kid in a grocery store or a mall and to be treated with far more respect than your mother was. Um, people would think she was your nanny. How, how did you understand that and, and handle it?
2: It's still upsetting to think about Philly is a city of invisible walls, but the fact that you can't see them doesn't mean you can't feel them. And I used to, I, I characterized it every time we would drive to see my abuela or my tia's crossing Girard Avenue, it felt like the air pressure changed. And in some ways, I think that segregation that happened in El Barrio in North Philly created a space of profound freedom of expression. People were really free to be themselves and create a very vital and vibrant culture that surrounded merengue and hip hop and rice and beans and open front doors and storytelling. And so I think it incubated a really marvelous wonderland of culture But I also think it led to such diminished services that were necessary in that neighborhood, and I could sense all those things. You know, I had so many experiences being lighter skinned because I'm mixed than the rest of the women in my family, um, where I would just be treated more respectfully than my elders, which was quite shocking to me. It happened in an antique store, it happened in a grocery store, it happened in a healthcare clinic time and again. And my aunts, I remember one time, my Titi Ginny. this memory is not in the book, but um, she actually, like, kind of used that to her advantage. She had a nurse who was a home care nurse who was being really profoundly disrespectful to her. And I was, this was in, she was in the living room. She just needed to get her walker adjusted. I was in the kitchen um, helping Abuela cook, and I could hear this woman really belittling her and speaking to her in an unacceptably condescending way. And so I went into the living room to try to do something about it. I was still a teenager, but I had started at college. And my aunt said, oh, to this nurse, I want to introduce you to my niece who goes to Yale. And the woman's whole tune changed. And all of a sudden, it was, how can I help you? You know, so even, even my titijini could leverage that to her advantage. But after that nurse left, I looked titijini in the eye and I said, you know, that that's so painful to hear you spoken to that way. You know, and she just smiled and shrugged it off. And she said, you know, that's, that woman was ignorant. That happens all the time.
1: Yeah, I, I experience that a lot now, too, as a... Um, recently married um, person to a person of color um, I've witnessed far more discrimination than I ever imagined, not not to me but to my partner mm-hmm. as as a white person it's It's quite astonishing to actually see it happening in real time yeah and, and so unjust and it makes me so angry. And I I have to call it out when it happens, because I'm just so appalled by it.
2: It's kind of like, you know, if someone steps on you, it's like, okay, whatever. But if someone steps on someone you love, it's really not cool. It's really not cool. My problem was as a child, and I go into this problem in the book, as a child, I didn't have the confidence or even the vocabulary to speak up And so I would oftentimes stay silent. Um, And even at 10 years old, even at 13 years old, I could feel there was a major, major problem with that silence. And it was a problem I would have to solve in my lifetime.
1: You talk about in the book how the women on your mom's side, you describe them as messy, derelict squalor, and your English dad was manicured Americana. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on what you mean by
2: that. Yeah. And to be clear, though, the the language does say that the implication of the language is that um, I'm really talking about the landscapes and the the physical grounds that they're on. Um, I lived with my mom in Philadelphia, um, but because there was like a joint custody situation, sometimes once a month, sometimes once every two months or something like that, I would take the train out to my dad's house, which was an hour outside of Philly in the suburbs. Um, and it was this like real exposure to the American dream, quote unquote, and then this whiplash sense of going back home to a place that didn't have like wastebaskets on the corner. And, um, you know, where there was just a lot of blight in North Philly. And I think that going back and forth between those and seeing those profoundly stark divisions and just the architecture, the city services, the infrastructure, it was really disturbing. And I started getting really mad about that.
1: Your mother is also, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this exactly right, but she's a Lakumi priestess. Is that right? Yes, yes and and she shared stories with you about her journey as a spirit medium as you were growing up and in at the same time you also felt that your father's sadness always seemed a little bit holy and as oh, i was reading these descriptions of of your parents i couldn't help but feel that's an awful lot for a young girl to be holding at the same time and to figure out how to process. What did you make of of the sort of juxtaposition of these two really different parents as you were growing up?
2: My mother is, I, I refer to her in the book as a spiritual genius. She had a gift from the time she was five years old that she was basically, like, kind of walked with the spirit world in this material world, and I didn't have that gift. And so as she would tell me stories from her childhood and from her womanhood about her relationship to the spirit world, the things she witnessed, the deaths she foresaw, some of which I was privy to, it was, like, amazing to me, because I didn't have that gift. So in some ways, it was, like, scary and I didn't understand, but in other ways, I just wanted more stories, tell me more, tell me more because I wanted to know a world that she had access to, Um, and at times her spiritual path she held very close to her chest and was very private about, but sometimes she'd crack the door and let me in and teach me things. And so when I saw cleansing ceremonies or purification baths happening in my living room, it was wondrous. And it was a huge part of my cultural education. Um, I had also, I also had family members that were Catholic. I had family members who were Pentecostal. But this was different. This was part of the Afro-Caribbean diaspora path that started in West Africa. Um, so I had to learn about Puerto Rico's and the Caribbean's um, cultural history, too, as I learned about my mother's spiritual gift. And it was... It was one of the most profound gifts of my life to have that window into a world that I was welcome to, but that wasn't necessarily the place where I lived.
1: Do you see it as sort of real-life magic?
2: Let me answer that with an anecdote. In a play I wrote called Water by the Spoonful, there's a ghost in the play. And I've had this conversation with so many directors as we're talking about, well, how do you costume the ghost? And like, what's the lighting design for the ghost? And when I've spoken to the directors, I've just tried to make it clear, like, this isn't like a haunting. This is not like some phantasmagorical thing. This ghost just lives alongside the regular characters and is oftentimes like a, a mundane and boring presence, you know? So for me, it was like, the ghosts were there. The spirits were there. You know, when mom, when mom would tap into them, I did witness her in spirit possession on a number of occasions. It was pretty extraordinary. And it felt like my world was turning upside down. And sometimes it was scary because it was like watching my mother transform. But it was powerful and raw and so energized and kind of magnificent, too, I learned to tap into that magnificence, I think, as a writer. And that was when I started understanding my mom on my own terms and through my own experiences.
1: I definitely want to talk about that sort of transformative state with some examples a little bit later in our conversation. Um, Your aunt... Linda Hudes was the composer and keyboardist for the Big Apple Circus for 20 years, and she not only taught you how to read music and play the piano when the Big Apple Circus was in town, she let you sit next to her in the bandstand during rehearsals and you turn the pages of the music score. At this point, would you say you are a circus connoisseur?
2: <laughs> um like probably a circus snob because I started with the best of the best. She was writing these incredible original rock and roll like neo romantic scores for a beautiful like what would now be called like artisanal like one ring circus basically it was amazing so she wrote a lot of original music but she would also cover like Juan Luis Guerra or um James Brown and so I would like turn her pages on the bandstand and watch the clown act rehearse or turn her pages on the bandstand and watch the strongmen or the aerialists um practice and refine their acts and I think even though I became a playwright, like it's that circus thing that gave me my theater aesthetic, that circus blended with like my mother's Lukumi living room rituals. Like that's, that's my aesthetic right there. (laughs) What makes for a great circus? The thing to me, and this is really thrilling when it happens in a play too, is actually the lack of make-believe is what makes a great circus. So a clown is putting on telling a story through his or her movements and acts. But when when push comes to shove, like the clown's going to drop the juggling pin or keep juggling the juggling pin. That's not make-believe, that's real. And the clown's going to pull it off or not, you know, that the trapeze artist is going to land the aerial toss or is going to fall into the net. And that's real. And it's mostly stunning and beautiful and like a teeny tiny bit dangerous. (laughs) And I think that that danger, honestly, like we're mortal people. We relate to it. Like life is dangerous. And what they do is they take that danger and they turn it into art and beauty
1: You've talked about how these experiences with your aunt were your early theatrical education. And by 10 years old, you'd absorb the music of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band and Eddard James and Steel Pulse and even Bach. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you can talk about how one specific act at the Big Apple Circus by Jeff Gordon influenced your thinking about performance it's really a beautiful part of a broken language
2: so jeff gordon was mr gordoon in the big apple circus and um he had an act where he basically had a, a dowel with a roll of toilet paper on the end so that was in one hand and then in his other hand was a leaf blower The simplest thing in the world, like the cheapest, like slightly scatological, but nothing actually gross going on because it's toilet paper. And he would just go into the middle of the ring and he would use the leaf blower to blow. It would start to unfurl the roll of toilet paper until it was floating in the air. And so he was kind of juggling, but actually with the leaf blower, trying to keep this roll of toilet paper in the air and it looked like a cloud and he would have to run to one side and then the other side would drop so he'd have to run to the other side to kind of keep it afloat and the kids would be screaming and laughing because they're like look it's dropping on that side so he'd be running around the ring keeping it afloat and then he just looked out at the audience smiled and pressed the power button off on his leaf blower and the cloud fell on him and he danced out of the ring with the cloud of toilet paper all over his body and it's the simplest cheapest joy and play. You can imagine, you know? And I'm like, it, to me, it it makes me a child again. And it's like, that's what theater can do best.
1: You had another piano teacher named Dolly Krasnopolsky, and you've said she's changed your life. In in what way?
2: Circus, even though I witnessed a lot of the rehearsal and like hard labor that went into it. um, I didn't live with my aunt, so I was only with her here and there for rehearsals. Um, With Dolly, you know, the commitment to rigor, she is the person in my childhood who introduced me to that. And that was another thing that I really began to relate to my mom with. Like, my mom was so dedicated and rigorous about her spiritual practice. And I could tell the more time she dedicated to making her altars beautiful, the more my mom would glow. The more I could see that candle in her heart, like, burning, you know? And I found that with Dolly. She would tell me each of my fingers on each hand was a different instrument in the orchestra. My fourth finger was always the oboe and the oboe was never playing loud enough. She'd be like, fourth finger oboe. And I think we just kind of both grew up together a little bit. I remember she she had rent to pay. Um, and most of her piano lessons were like kids who were there for a year and then would drop it. And I was the one who was trying to like push and go farther and deeper always. And So we had a loyalty to each other for that.
1: You began writing as a young girl as well, Um, but you did this, I read, as a way of dealing with the loneliness that you felt as you were growing up and you experimented with everything from self-made zines to movie scripts, as (laughs) well as constant journaling. How did the writing help you?
2: The relationship between loneliness and solitude is, is somewhat porous. I don't think there's just a totally clearer line between them. And somehow writing really helps bridge those two situations where loneliness can just become solitude. Mm. And solitude can oddly, like, be productive. I would just be alone with my thoughts remembering all the magnificent stories my elders had been telling about this place called Puerto Rico, which I didn't know what that was. I had never been there. As a little girl, I hadn't. And I would get alone and I'd write and I I was like, there are so many places in the world I've never been. There's so many stories that are different than mine. And that just, oh my, it tickled my imagination. That's how I played. I didn't play with Barbies. I didn't, I was not a voracious reader as a child. I didn't play sports. Like that was, that was fun. That was play for me.
1: You wrote your first play in eighth grade. Titled "My Best Friend Died." <laughs> tell us, tell us about that play.
2: <laughs> um, subtle it was not. Um, yes, my best friend died. That was the worst thing I could imagine happening. So you know, look, that was my Shakespearean tragedy without the uh, without any finesse. Uh, I wrote. The book, Music and Lyrics, for that one. And I'd like to think I've become a somewhat more skilled writer. But one thing that has not changed from My Best Friend Died to How I Try to Write Today, I can see that I was always an ensemble writer. Basically, I it was for our eighth grade show and... I was like, I want to get as many talented featured moments in this as I can. So I think I had a cast of 10 and they all had a moment to let their talents shine. Like I knew who were the singers. I knew who was the ballet dancer. I knew who was the tap dancer and they all got their moment. And I can see now I've never made this connection until this conversation, but I can see like, I'm still doing that. Like in the Heights is an ensemble piece. My broken language is my memoir. And someone asked me, why is your memoir not about you? Why is it about everyone else? And I'm like, that's, that's the way I see the world.
1: That's a really interesting perspective, because it is about everybody else, but it is also very much about you. I mean, I feel, having read the memoir, that I have an understanding of how you've come to be in a way that I wouldn't have, um, not knowing about how all these people help bring you to life.: Yeah, yeah. In tenth grade, you took a creative writing class where you had an assignment to write a ten minute play and submit it to the Philadelphia Young Playwrights Festival. And you won. That meant that they produced your play. What was that like at that moment to have that sort of confirmation that you actually had talent?
2: (laughs) Wow. Um, Oh my gosh, I never thought of that as a confirmation that I had talent. I thought of that as a confirmation like, it's worth telling stories. This, This has value in the world. You know, maybe I put that talent part of it off to the side too much. But um, I was like, to me, these these two girls I wrote were real, even though they were imaginary. Like, their spirits felt real to me. Their stories felt real to me. And um, it was two girls who met across an alleyway. So their bedroom windows faced each other in Philly. Um, And it was about all the girl things. It was about, like, am I good enough? Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I gross? You know, are we friends? Are we crushes? Are we lovers? Are we enemies? It was all of that stuff. And, gosh, I I wish I had... They sent me a letter feedback, and I was so excited because it said, you know, you got accepted, and we're going to produce your play, and here's some thoughts we have about the play. And I wish I had taken that as, you know, you've got talent, kid. But more I took it of, like... Hey, you exist. Like, honestly, I felt like it was just like someone telling me I existed, um, which was more than enough fuel to last me for a while.
1: My high school, you were not only writing plays, you also wrote for the School Literary Magazine, for the Weekly Newspaper. You started (laughs) a P.O. Soul acoustic band called Solstice. Um, At this point in your life, what did you think you might want to do professionally?
2: Oh, I Music. I was going to be a musician. I was born to be a musician. I was studying to be a musician. Like, that's it. That was the path. I was not going to be a writer. It's funny looking back on it, because I I spent as many hours writing in my life as I spent playing music. But by virtue of the fact that I had two family members who were professional musicians, it honestly seemed like not only a really fun path, but quite a practical path. Like, they had... A steady income. They had really built a nice life for themselves. I knew no one who was a writer and certainly no Latino writers. I had not read any. So I, I couldn't fathom a life in writing. I mean, my mom had to be like, hello, girl, like be a writer. She had to just honestly say those words for it to even click in my head. This Now I'm fast forwarding to my mid-20s, but I just hadn't even had that thought. It's quite a simple, basic one, but she had to spell it out for me.
1: Before you left for college, you disposed of all of your journals. And when I read that, I literally, like, my my heart stopped for a second. I understand you tried to burn the journals in your bathtub, but that <laughs> didn't quite work out. So you gathered six years of journals in large hefty bags and threw them into a dumpster.
2: Why yeah, it that? was, it's so, it's so, uh, it makes me want to cry to think about it. Like, you know... I was a sad kid and I didn't want to remember that stuff and I didn't want to be that person anymore. And so I thought if you dispose of the memories, then the, then you're not that person anymore. I wanted to, I guess, wish away the parts of my life that I didn't understand or didn't have the, the wherewithal to process.
1: Is there anything that you wish you still had?
2: (laughs) Um, All of it. (laughs) No, no, I don't, I don't, regret not having that material now i i'm okay with that i i'm not an archivist at heart um but i guess i'm just sad for that 17 year old girl who couldn't really reconcile with her parents separation and couldn't really reconcile with some of her cousins who You know, I'm saying she because she feels really distant from me now, but it's me. Like, um, you know, her her older cousins who she idolized, who passed away in their 20s decades before their time should have come, um, who lived a life of, like, really disturbing segregation between both sides of her family. I didn't like that stuff. Um, And, you know, I'd want to just go back in time and put my arm around that girl.
1: Yeah. You mentioned that you attended Yale University. While you were there, you studied music composition and took up theater as an extracurricular activity. And you composed musicals based on the Yoruba pantheon that your mother had taught you. How was that work received at Yale?
2: That was the first time I really started investigating my mom's spiritual path um, in terms of my own self-education. So my mom had started to educate me on Um, on Lukumi in high school. But then I was all of a sudden on my own at Yale, and I wanted to continue that path. And it was cool. So I wrote this one musical called Sweat of the River, Sweat of the Ocean, and it was was all Latino characters. And one of the fringe benefits of, of this was I got to meet a more robust community of Latino students. A lot of them were first generation college students like me. That work was, look, that musical was not a sophisticated piece of writing, I would say, but it was me working my way towards a worldview that I think I still believe in to this day. Uh, It was really exciting to write about the Orisha, to bring that energy on stage. It was thrilling. It was, the thing that was cool is, it was, the, the rules of theater is you go and you sit and you listen and you just honor that basic respect. And so the audience had to listen to what the Orisha are. It wasn't some... Gossip thing where they're talking about, oh, Santeria is hoodoo, Santeria is witchcraft, it's black magic, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't like rumor mongering or judgmental. It was like they got to listen to what it was on my terms. And it was received well. That was very encouraging. And it also felt like a really good bit of cultural mischief I had done at an Ivy League school.
1: You stated that the first play that you encountered that really, truly spoke to you was a play at the Second Stage Theater called The Good Times Are Killing Me, which was an adaptation of Linda Barry's comic strips and graphic novels, and I've had the distinct honor of interviewing her, and she is truly, Mm. she is a genius, officially. Yes, Um, yes. What was it about that particular play that resonated so deeply
2: I saw it when I was a girl and it was two girls on stage and it was, you know, I don't remember a ton about it except that it was like the kind of segregation that I knew very well from Philadelphia. It was a young black girl and a young white girl and their friendship and the reasons their friendship were also challenged and doomed because of racism and because of segregation. And I so related to that. I thought it was amazing. And the the actors weren't, like, adult actors playing girls. They were girls. You know, it was a total, like, girl-driven vibe there, you know? And that was so cool. I loved that. Um, that girls could be a whole world. Girls could be the whole art. And that art could be seen by another girl, which was me. That, that was super exciting.
1: After you graduated, you continued to perform gigs in bands. And I'm wondering if you can share... Um, the story about your experience with the Philadelphia legend, uh, Larry Gold, and how he shifted the direction of your life.
2: I think this nation is really good at conflating like a dream with a rival. Like you arrive somewhere and your dream has come true, and I was—I'm not immune to this. I, I know—I know a little better now, but I was not immune to this. And so there are these moments in my musical life where I thought, "Here we go, it's going to get real now. It's going to get big. Like it, you know, shit's going to happen, and I'm gonna—I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna make it." And so I was in Philly, gigging, playing with wonderful. Philly had this neo soul renaissance around uh, leading up to the year 2000 that I was lucky enough to tap into and play with some of these amazing musicians. And Larry Gold, who was a producer and a cellist and behind the scenes helped kind of create the Philadelphia sound. You know, he called me into his studio and he was like, what you got, kid? And I showed him what I had and he was like, let's let's give this a go. And so there was a few months of my life where I was recording some tracks with Larry Um, And he was like, you know, if I like it, we're going to do a thing together and it's going to be big. We're going to make an album together. And that was really exciting. And The tracks, I still have them. I listen to them every once in a while. They were good tracks. Uh, In the end, they were not good enough. And he didn't dance around things. He just laid it out there. He was like, you know, it's good, but it's not good enough. I don't usually take feedback so well. Like, I get really defensive about feedback, but I tell you when he told me that, it's not that my self-esteem got smaller or, you know, anything like that. I just thought, oh, shit, he's right. I thought I agree. And I couldn't believe that was my response. And then I had a problem. I think that was a major uh, stepping stone on the path to me realizing that maybe, like, maybe music wasn't my be-all, end-all. Maybe music was a pathway to something else and this kind of slow emergence of exploring life as a writer.
1: Kiara, what made you believe him when he told you that you weren't good enough to be a musician?
2: I think what I realized in that moment was the reason I played, learned to play Bach in middle school was because it was beautiful and I loved it. And the reason I learned to play Selena in in college was because I was curious and that music made me feel alive. But the reason I wanted Larry Gold to make my record was because I wanted someone to like my stuff. And in the end, that is really, really short of the bar. That is not something to build a life on. And it's fake. And I was like, you know, I mean, I've, boy, have I never related to Holden Caulfield in my life. But right now, I was like, you know, I was like, oh, that's phony to yeah. be liked. That's what is that? That's not that doesn't jive with with me. And as I found my way slowly to writing, I realized, like, I knew what my reason was and it wasn't to be liked. It was something that felt full enough. And disruptive enough, but also beautiful enough to, like, fill a path, a life path on. And that was to tell stories that I believe mattered. And so if someone didn't like them, okay, fine. But I knew why I had written them.
1: This is when you went to your mom, as you mentioned before, and she said, why aren't you taking writing more seriously? Why don't you pursue it? What did you tell her when she asked you that? <laughs>
2: I I think I bumbled and blundered my way through a few insufficient sentences. I didn't have to say much. My mom has this vibe where she can kind of like Jedi focus me onto the thing and I don't need to like respond with affirmation or with contradiction. Like she just knows it's happening inside me. A lot happens with me and my mom with few words. Um, she just gave me that little tap on, on my back So that I had to keep going
1: uh, You write this in your memoir After that experience Music, my first love My self-indulgence, my life raft It was in one breath No longer enough Mom had pointed out the slow leak in my vessel I had to jump ship She then asked you To break a silence You had lived with all of your life What was that silence?
2: Um That silence has to do with those invisible walls I was talking about earlier. There were a lot of silences. Um, The silence about HIV and AIDS, you know, that was huge in the community at the time. And it started to affect us before there was much medical information. Um, And so that silence was really piled on to confusion. Uh, There was silence around addiction. There was silence honestly, around her faith and her spiritual path, because that was really, really vilified in my childhood. All these silences, when I just wanted to know, why did my cousin die? You know, what happened to Tico? What happened to Bibi? Like gun violence, like all of these disappearances, all of this silence. Um, But I also knew the flip side of the coin was that these painful stories also cohabitated with some of the most magnificent stories I'd ever heard in my life about resilience, about uh, migration, about rebellion. Uh, You know, the generations of women in my family in Puerto Rico and here had done amazing things and had advanced their community in really profound and also very humble ways. And so I knew those silences were accompanied by magnificence. And I think that's what made me want to tell them, because I trusted the magnificence to hold and surround and give a soft landing to some of the more painful stuff. You know, even even the poverty in the neighborhood is painful. Like, even the depression was painful. Like... Depression was everywhere in El Barrio. No one went to therapy. You know, like, what are you talking? No, there's no, this was before there was a calm app. This was before, no, none of that. There was not self-care. Like, that didn't exist. Self-care was caring for your neighbor, actually. That's the closest you got to caring for yourself. There, yeah, the silences went up and down and sideways and diagonally. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman.
1: Canva is great for designing visual content for work Anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at Canva.com. Designed for
0: work. Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In The Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. and the founder of an online education platform called I Love Creatives. And on the show, Puno shares her journey from working on the Call of Duty video game to building both a design studio and a trade school for digital design. Puno has practical advice for taking a thoughtful and iterative approach to career building most importantly, this show is actionable. It's about how you can take your own next step in the creative world and into the creator economy. It'll help you discover creative, intriguing people who are making a living, and it'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support.
1: You decided to go back to school to get your MFA and chose Brown University primarily because of the playwright paula Vogel and You write how one of the first things she taught you was to dispel of your notion that you must be loyal to English. How did she do that, and what did that mean exactly?
2: Having come off of the Philadelphia Public School system, which had taught me um, the you know the kind of Western literary canon and then gone to an Ivy League school where I kept taking literature classes that was, again, really steeped in the Western literary canon, half of my family spoke Spanish, and that was not part of any canon that I encountered, you know, unless I sought it out. And again, Paula just kind of pointed out the obvious. Um, just like my mom had pointed out the obvious when She was like, why are you not writing? You know, Paula was just like, you need to notice something. Screw English. You know how to speak it. Do what you want with it. It's yours. There's not, you know, you don't have to follow anyone's rules. Screw English and use your language. And in particular, I had a lot of shame and confusion surrounding the fact that my Spanish was not as good as my mom's, you know? And so my Spanish felt insufficient And I expressed that to her. I said, you know, English doesn't have all the words. It doesn't have all the vocabulary to to express who I am, to express what God means, to express what music means. But my Spanish is messed up, you know, and she was like, she's so, she's such, she's such like a garden gnome. Like, she's such like a happy, positive little spirit. And she just looked me in the eye with with her little sparkle. And she was like, write your broken Spanish. I was like, no, Paula, that's not how it goes. That's that's the thing I'm supposed to be most ashamed of. She was like, not anymore, not here. Free yourself of that shame. And all I needed was permission. I, w- I went to town. Let me tell you, I was like experimenting with ways to break English, break Spanish, mix it up, toss it, you know, dice it, splice it, you know, pack it in. It led to real experimentation and play. And I fell in love with language all over again. I fell in love with the ways that, I could confuse people the ways I could surprise people. And the thing that's fun is everyone has language. So they're used to it. And then when you show them something that they didn't know language could do, they're like, oh, oh, boy, I was so used to this thing. And now it sounds different, you know? And yeah, that permission, that permission to be broken,
1: that's all I needed. Can you talk about the list your identities you did? It was an exercise you did in the class with Holly Hughes and what happened when you did it?
2: Yeah, she came in. I was already, I already revered her um, because she was one of the like really rebellious downtown New York theater artists who um, got the, the Senate all riled up and then the NEA stopped funding individual artists and, I was really interested in this in high school and I looked into it and I had done a history report on Holly Hughes and I was like, she's this really cool lesbian performance artist and, you know, and and then all of a sudden she walks into the Brown University seminar room and she's like the guest artist for the semester. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am meeting my idol and she looks really different in person than on microfiche. This is super cool." And she said she told us to list our identities. That was, like, the the first writing assignment she gave us, just an in-class quick writing exercise. And I basically, like, went into a trance. And, you know, five minutes later, when she was like, okay, time's up, let's read it out loud, I looked at what I had written, and I was really shocked. I had written the identities, not just of, that I had, like, you know, Boricua, white, Jewish, musician, Writer, like I had written that stuff, but then it really veered very quickly into the identities of like everyone I loved um fat, tall, skinny dark skin light skinned like all of these things that were you know h i v positive I'm not h i v positive why would I write that as my identity, and I looked at my list which I hadn't really been conscious. My experience was that I had like a blackout and it was a very like violent physical experience. Um, And then I looked at this list and I was trying to calm my breathing and calm down. And I was like, my cousins are, are my orishas. My cousins are that of God within me. Like literally they are like the bones and mud and ribs that I'm made out of. That's all I could surmise from that. Yeah, it's sort of like your
1: book in a lot of ways, um, in terms of the identities helping shape you through the book. That sort of blackout happened several times more. It happened one time after. I think it happened two times before this particular Mm -hmm. experience and then one time after. Um, But you haven't had one since. Do you think you ever might experience it
2: again? You've said that four possessions
1: <laughs> might be your life's allowance. <laughs> I love that line.
2: I think that last one, all of those times, you know, I debated using the word possession because that does have a very specific and almost technical meaning in in Lukumi practice. Um, I debated the word trance. You know, I, I looked into a lot of different words, and I kind of came back to possession um, because I I did feel that something else took over my body and spoke itself through me, which is what I had witnessed in other spirit possessions. All four of those times were like storytelling moments or writing moments in my life. And the last time, you know, this is why the book ended with this last one. The last time I, I, I wrote the thing, I think I was so quiet all my life. I was the girl that wanted to like be sad in my journal and then throw away the journal so that it didn't exist. And that sadness didn't exist, and my grief didn't exist. And the last writing possession was when I was writing this play, and and I, I literally just named the shame, and I named the ugliness, and I wasn't ashamed of it, you know? In the play, the line is, I am a whore, you know, which out of context is kind of neither here nor there, but it was a reclamation. It was this um, young hero who was, you know, saying, I am a whore, and... Um, I wasn't ashamed of it. And I let it be ugly and I let it be loved. And that was a breakthrough for me. The rest of my life happened after that. And so I don't know that there's another possession to be had because that, you know, then I, then I think I became me. You began writing the first play in
1: your Elliott trilogy while finishing your MFA at Brown. And the play traced the legacy of war through three generations of a Puerto Rican family and was set to the contrapuntal structure of a Bach fugue. Um, What was the reaction to that combination, that particular combination?
2: Elliot, a soldier's fugue felt like, in some ways, the play where I, I really kind of not discovered my voice, but discovered how to start crafting my voice. And it was my first play to be done in New York. And I put together things that don't aren't always put together like Puerto Rican uh, men in the United States Marines and Johann Sebastian Bach's well-tempered clavier, you know. Usually those two things aren't smushed together, but for me there was a real logic there and I was so excited about about the counterpoint and the harmony in in those two themes bouncing off each other. And I think some people, I mean, I, I still saved my rejection letter from Playwrights Horizons that was like, yeah, this isn't a play. I was like, what? Yes, it is. Yes, it is a play. But I also, you know, it did end up getting produced and in in a very small theater with 75 metal folding chairs, some of which were very rusty and like a handful of people saw it. And I, I think really did connect with it very deeply. At that time, um, our troops were still coming back from Iraq and enough of them had come back that we as a nation, so this was like 2007, really started to see what they were coming back with and how this was going to affect our entire nation. You know, the the kinds of trauma they had experienced, the kind of grief and anger that were trapped in their cells. And so actually, you know, Bach aside, you know, Puerto Rican Marines aside, the thing that happened at that moment with the audience was parents weeping for their children. Um, and I, I started to realize that, you know, one thing a play can be is a safe place for an audience to feel and discuss things that, that everyday civilian life doesn't really give them the opportunity to.
1: In between the first two plays of the Elliott trilogy, you wrote the book for Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical In the Heights. How did you first meet Lin?
2: Um, Yeah, that little I Am a horror play, that was called The Adventures of Barrio Girl, Installment 12, Lulu's Golden Shoes. And that play had a reading in New York. Um, It was about, it was like a bi-curious Latina's sexual coming-of-age story. And... It was totally wild and like trashy and crazy and all of those things. And for all of those reasons, it's like never ever gets produced. Um, But I love that play and it had a reading in New York and someone heard it and was like, you know, I know, I know a guy who's writing about the Latino community in New York and he's looking for a playwright. It was like right place, right time. And someone passed my number to Lynn and yeah, then we were writing a musical together.
1: What has it been like collaborating with him over the years?
2: it's been really fun um he's a child at heart a lot like paula vogel um but he also has such a wicked sense of craft uh, i mean he can really make you feel like you're hearing your first language for the first time all over again um so just a lot of playfulness and then also like a lot of confusion writing a musical is so hard there's so many moving parts and um you know you change a scene and all of a sudden like the bridge of a song needs to be rewritten but as he rewrites it a lyric comes into focus, and then it it changes the entire plot line, you know, so it's, it's a lot of back and forth. And so it's, yeah, it's like, playful and like, very head scratching at the same time.
1: In 2007, Elliot, A Soldier's Feud, the play that we were just talking about, was named for a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In 2008, he won the Tony Award for Best Musical for In the Heights. And in 2009, the play was also a finalist for the 2009 Pulitzer Prize. And I read that the recognition helped ease some of the insecurities, traumas, and deep fears of writing personal work and sending it out into the public. But some some remained after that. It's like I was reading that and thinking, oh, my God, what hope is there for the rest of us To, to win that kind of recognition and still feel those same insecurities and traumas?
2: you know, I wish I could say that I had had no ego or had a strong enough ego that criticism didn't hurt. But for me, I always feel most alive in the creative process. And I always feel the most dread when the work goes out into the world. Um, but I can't totally shield myself from that. I put the work into the world. And so I have to meet the world where it's at, you know, as the world meets the work. And I'm always terrified. I'm always terrified because I didn't go down the path of writing pretty songs and hoping people would feel good as they listen to my pretty songs. Like I went down a path of writing, (laughs) writing the shit and writing the trash and writing the gold and writing the glory and trying to be real about all that. And so it does feel vulnerable every time. And sometimes I'm proven right and it opens old wounds. And sometimes I'm proven wrong and people say, thank you so much. This was healing. Um, And so, you know, if I, if I had the perfect formula, like I'd probably be done writing. (laughs)
1: Mm. You've said that recognition can sustain you in the long term and that the undying love of the daily craft is the real source of your joy. And I was wondering how long does the pride and joy of accomplishing something last for you?
2: Hmm. I think it just becomes part of you. Like I remember this meal, my husband and I had (laughs) in California uh, well, this was back in the day. He's my high school sweetheart. And he he makes he makes a few little surprise appearances in the book. I call him, I refer to him as the boy because, like, we were children when we met. Um, you know, just this nice meal we had at Yosemite National Park in California. And, like, I feel like that meal is still in me somewhere. Like, the cell, there's a cell that remains, you know. And the parts of the creative process that I'm really proud of. I remember one day in rehearsal of Water by the Spoonful and Liza Colonzeus, who's this extraordinary actress who originated the role of Haiku Mom slash Odessa. It's like her character was kind of like a little nice. And I finally just let her character, I I gave her character some claws and I brought those new lines in and the actors were all like, oh shit, when they read it, you know, because it took her character to a different place and let that actor dig in and use different muscles and it was just, honestly, it was like one grain of sand on a beach. Like, it was not a big deal moment in my career. But, like, I think of that all the time. I think of how gratifying that was just to, like, surprise the actors and make them excited to memorize those lines. You know, that's the stuff that that fuels me and that lives within me. I also think of the fact that after I interviewed my uncle, who had been um, a Marine in Vietnam, I interviewed him for Elliott Soldiers Fugue. He never spoke about that stuff. I was very nervous to interview him. I thought, what right did I have? And then he, he just opened his heart and he spoke from his heart for hours on end when I gave the, when I created the kind of formal safe space to talk about it, he met me there. And he called me the next week after that interview and he said, Kiki, I feel lighter than I have in 30 years. I'll never forget that. Like, honestly, I feel a little proud of that. I'm like, that was helpful. That was a helpful thing to do. It was also cool when he came to the premiere and, like, met Stone Phillips and there was a whole big, like, there was, like, press and stuff. Yeah, that was kind of cool, but, like, the best part wasn't that. The best part was him saying, I feel lighter than I have in 30 years.
1: After two previous Pulitzer nominations, you won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Water by the Spoonful, the second of the plays in the Elliott trilogy. And is it true you found out about the award while you were teaching in class?
2: Well no, I didn't find out about it and that's why by the time like the teaching was halfway through and we took a break and I turned on my phone, I had been I missed out on the news. I was the last to know. There were a lot of voicemails and a lot of texts on my phone and the last time that had happened it was because of a death in the family, so I was like really mm. alarmed at first. But it, I was like okay, my agent wouldn't be leaving me a message about a death in the family, so I think this is probably good news and when when the class came back from that 10-minute bathroom break, I was so shocked. I was jittery. And I told them what had just happened. And they kind of spontaneously broke out into applause. We were all excited. It wasn't on anyone's radar. It's not what I expected to happen that day. I just thought we were going to have a workshop. (laughs) After
1: all the accolades, write about how you became a kind of flavor of the month and how every producer was calling you with all sorts of offers from Hollywood. And you decided
2: to do some film and TV writing for a year. How did you like that? For me, it's about... (sighs) It's not so much about, um, like, what medium I'm working in, but, like, what the story is. And if if my connection to the story is there, I'm there. (sighs) Because Hollywood has more machinery and a lot more money attached to it, it comes with shinier things and, you know, one must always be skeptical of shiny things. But I enjoyed it. It was fun. I came back to theater. You know, one day my dream is to, like, you know, once my kids have gone through college, like I want to be a poet and like not make any money, you know? So um, I'm trying to be a realist and keep my lights on, you know, which I feel very, very blessed to be able to do. Um, And I think there is a lot of merit also to having the widest audience possible. But I, I know from personal experience, there's also a lot of merit to telling your story to one person and it just being a really good moment, you know? And so I'd like to think that I can go back and forth between really shiny, visible mediums, and very small, quiet whisper-in-the-woods mediums.
1: What was it like adapting In the Heights for the screen?
2: It was really exciting to me because Lynn had been writing In the Heights for a few years before I got on board as a playwright for the stage adaptation, for the stage show, and I always felt like I was kind of playing catch-up. Like, he had these years on me, and he he had this time to kind of hone it in his vision before I came on board. And so when, when it came time for me to write the screenplay, I said, Lynn, can I have that time now? Like, can I just do my thing with it for a minute? And he was more than happy to oblige because he trusted me at that point, and also because he was working on Hamilton and was quite busy. And so I feel like I got my time, and I got to sink my teeth into some things... That felt really personal to me, especially with, like, beefing up the the women, the female characters. I, I made the screenplay to be about a male storyteller, which is Usnavi, but he's telling the story of the women on his block. And I, I wanted to really bring that more to the surface.
1: One of my favorite uh, plays that you've written is Miss You Like Hell, the play that you wrote you. with musician Aaron McKeown. I saw it at the public theater and just... I just wept. I actually went with my my dear friend Terry Teachout who is the theater critic for the Wall Street Journal. And you know, he's a tough guy and we're sitting next to each other and at one point he just wept. Hmm. Like baby. He was just sobbing. And it just made me realize the sort of connective power of theater by sharing sort of these emotions without having to say anything by just listening and participating by the sheer virtue of being there. Um, I loved that play, but I read that after, after the play, you called your theater agent and asked him to cancel your productions and commissions for the next two years. What made you decide to do that?
2: I wish I could say that I've got like some amazing armor that's foolproof, but I don't. And, and theater is hard. And theater takes a toll. Um, one of the things that I still haven't figured out a solution to is that the theaters that kind of pay me the most and that I can really support my life off of, they have a largely white audience. And I have mostly been writing for brown characters, Latino characters, and that chips away bit by bit. After 15 years of primarily white audiences watching my primarily brown characters, I started to feel like confused and just hurt. And, um, you know, hearing, of course, sometimes the, the loudest and most ignorant voice in the room is the one that you hear. And I had heard 15 years worth of that stuff. And it was hard. And I think Miss You Like Hell became the hardest one for me because... I think sometimes I start with some—a first draft is kind of a little palatable, and it takes a little bit of courage for me draft by draft to really let my characters uh, be ugly and imperfect. And as I was writing this character of Beatrice for Daphne Rubin Vega, who is a a truly extraordinary performer— um, and a really complicated and full human being who has access to so many different colors and tones in her body and her musculature and her in her cadences with language like, I was like, let me really let this woman be flawed. She deserves to be flawed and, and the thing that she's an undocumented character. And there's this notion that, you know, undocumented people have to be perfect, you know, to earn the chance to have a place in American society. I really hate that notion. And I really advocate for like our right as women, as migrants, as immigrants, our right to be average and to be fucked up too. Like, I think that's really important. And so I was like, let me make this character, let me make her real, man. And so the farther I went down that path, the more incredible our process felt and the The richer the the play got, in my opinion, simultaneously, the more nervous I got, because I was, like, anticipating already the audience's reactions, and they didn't want to see a flawed brown woman who was unapologetic about her flaws, who still owned her right to be messy. I knew that wouldn't sit well with a lot of audiences, and I started to anticipate that, and... I got really in my head about it. And so that's when I knew, I mean, I was like, I couldn't even eat. I was like having panic attacks. And, and that's when I knew like I needed a break and I needed to explore some other avenues where it wouldn't be a lot of wealthy white people just gazing at, you know, a complicated brown character and actor. And so that, that was the impulse to write a book because I was like, it, with a book, People can have their own private interaction and relationship back and forth with my characters. You know, my characters are not, like, put on display in the same way, and there's no, quote-unquote, like, performing of ethnicity or performing of, of race. Um, so I was ready for a break. But I wasn't quitting theater altogether. I just needed a little break.
1: You've written how, in many ways, your interests as a writer don't match the U.S. theatrical landscape and that many characters in the plays could not afford to see your plays. And if they were Mm. given a mob ticket, they'd feel out of place in that lobby. Now that theater has sort of paused and the world has shifted ever so slightly, do you have hopes that possibly post COVID theater could change these dynamics or force these dynamics to change a bit?
2: Um, I have a lot of hope that the artists will keep pushing and push really hard And, you know, I've seen this happen in the world of sports a little bit where athletes have really started to push harder and so hard against rules that it creates some upset in the field. I'm thinking about Naomi Osaka and that sort of stuff that's happened recently where she's really saying like, you know, look, I understand there's a whole commercial machinery happening here and I love this sport that I participate in, but I'm really central to it and I have to be well. And that's the bottom line, too. And we have to come up with the solution. And you know she's not alone. She's not the only athlete going through that. And so I see something similar happening in theater where the artists are pushing back. Artists have very little power in theater, like because Holly Hughes, you know, wrote about being a lesbian and the NEA defunded individual artists, what the result of that is that arts institutions, which now exclusively get the funding federally, got this outsized power in an artistic field. And so it's an artistic field run by institutions. That's a real imbalance. You know, the institutions right now remain more powerful than the artists, but I I can start to feel a pushback and the artists being like, no, then I won't work there. Screw it. You know, and finding other ways to to draw audiences. And and I think once we get the institutions on their toes a little bit, to the point where they feel like actually threatened of their stability... That's when I think good stuff can happen. So, I, you know, I'm hoping for a renaissance of like healthy, good competition between individual artists and these institutions that have maybe gotten a little bit big for their britches.
1: I hope so, Kiara. I really do. I do too. The last thing I want to talk to you about is a piece you wrote for New York Magazine last year about Corey Menifee, a dining hall worker at Yale who became an unwitting activist by smashing a stained glass window that romanticized slavery. Can you talk a little bit more about that story and how you first heard about it?
2: My husband sent me a link. My husband's a public defender and he sent me a link and it said, this is, this is your next play. You better go to New Haven tomorrow. And so I, I read this reporting piece about that a dining hall employee at Yale had smashed the stained glass window showing, you know, kind of content and pastoral Scenes of women slave women with bales of cotton on their head, baskets full of cotton on their head. well, he had smashed it, and his first court appearance was the next day and I would just I just went up to New Haven um I remember being at Yale and feeling so divided as a student between gratitude for the incredible cultural riches of that place. They really nourished me, they really broadened my horizons, and this sense that like. Yale would not think kindly upon a lot of my cousins if they just walked into those spaces. You know that was a divide I could never quite come to terms with. And reading Corey Menifee's story, somehow that resonated with me. I didn't know why he had smashed it. That wasn't clear, but I was like, okay, come on now, let's let me go check this out. So I went up and I saw his um, his court appearance, and then I reached out to him, and you know I was like, I- I'd love to hear your story about why and. The thing that, that's interesting about Corey is he's, he claims, he claims that he is is not a radical person and, and not, doesn't have the heart of an activist and, and hadn't even, he has vision problems. So he hadn't ever even noticed these stained glass before because they're quite small. And during reunion weekend, a black alum came with his daughter and said, can I just show my daughter? The the dining hall was already closed. Corey was mopping up along with the other employees. They were cl- closing up for reunion weekend. And the guy was knocking on the door saying, please just let me in. I don't want to eat anything. I just want to show my daughter the, the stained glass I had to sit beneath and eat my salads at, you know. And so... Then that alum started pointing it out to all the dining hall employees, and Corey had never noticed it before. And I think there was a before and after for him. Once he noticed it, he didn't like that image. It just felt wrong to him. And a week later, he smashed it out with the broom handle. And I was like, come on, Corey, here we go. Like, that was shocking. They had been trying to rename Calhoun College since Henry Louis Gates, uh, before him had been students there all of a sudden, six months later, Calhoun College is renamed. You know, Corey Menifee was never, ever mentioned officially as part of that important change at Yale. But let's be real, that act is what tipped the scales.
1: And are you expanding the article into a play as (laughs) you're initially
2: (laughs) Well, that's why I ended up writing it as an essay, because, you know, I took that time off from playwriting, and I really felt like I didn't want Corey's story to just languish because I needed a break from theater. And so I wrote it as this essay for New York Magazine. I, I hope I'm still finding my way back to the stage. And I-, I really hope I can write it. He's he's a tremendous, tremendous individual and with a with a fascinating story and a really cool personality and um, a new a new grandfather and his life has some really interesting chapters. So so to to be determined.
1: Well, I, I really look forward to the possibility that you might be able to bring that story to life for the stage and, and really can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Kiara Alegria-Hudis, thank you so much for creating such beautiful and important stories. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
2: It's my pleasure, Devi. Take care.
1: Kiara Alegria-Hudis memoir is titled, My Broken Language. You can find out more about all of her extraordinary work at kiora.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
3: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the Art Director is Emily Wyland.
1: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.